Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's S-double-E, changehappen.co.uk. You'll be able to catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 40, with the title, Rediscovering Lost Knowledge. And I have the absolute honor and privilege to be joined by Peter Edge. Peter described himself as someone who is a former senior investigating officer for Merseyside Police, a professional speaker with over 40 years' experience speaking before dinner on the subject of lost knowledge to customer service and after dinner on the lighter side of policing the inner city. We're interested to find out what the lighter side is. When I asked Peter to describe his superman, he said he's walked the Camino to Santiago three times by three different routes. Hello, Peter. Welcome to the show. Hello, Joe. And it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to be here, I have to say. Um, I've been looking forward to it for quite a while. So, yeah, we've, we've talked about it and finally we've got together. Got our diaries lined up in the end, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty so, difficult, which, which you wouldn't believe, really, would you, in this current climate? You'd think everyone would have all the time in the world, but it's so difficult to uh, to, to actually find the right uh, time to coincide. <laughs> So you obviously spend you, a lot of time washing your hair from my hair. Yeah, that doesn't work so well on a podcast, does it really? <laughs> Just for the benefit of your listeners, um, no. there's not that much hair on my head. There used to be a long time ago, but uh, there's not been that much there for about the last 30 years. Oh, sorry. So, uh, yeah, washing my hair and uh, all, all that all that, um, that hysteria about finally being able to go to the hairdressers that people are experiencing towards the end of lockdown, was unfortunately lost on me. Um, a quick rub over with some wet and dry sandpaper, and I'm, I'm usually good for this. It's a pleasure. <laughs> it is. You're probably going to tell me you weren't worried about the nail bars and having your nails done either. <laughs> <laughs> what would be a sausage for you? You've got to be joking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm afraid. Uh, yeah, I, I, a long time ago, I stopped looking in the mirror and thinking, "Ooh, you look good." <laughs> Nowadays, I just look away. I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't bother. Um, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't appeal. You to look me. in the mirror, and make sure that you you can see the bre- the breath marks on the mirror still. Yeah, I'm, yeah, you look good. I'm still breathing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that's alive. the first thing I check each day, and then, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, that's a winner. I'm, I'm on it for on it for the rest of the day. Then, yeah. I can live with that. That'll do. Another day done. Brilliant. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So tell me, we were talking about earlier, you, you talked about this rediscovering lost knowledge. So talk to me about this lost knowledge you talk about. Well, I don't know whether it's so much about rediscovering it. It's more about capturing and 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 retaining lost knowledge. And it's something I, I, I became interested in some years ago, not least of which because I, I thought to myself, here we all are as, as probably the most sophisticated animal on the planet, and we are accumulating knowledge left, right, and center. And yet, you know, unlike your, your average hard drive, you can't just plug a USB stick into your left ear hole and download it. And, you know, what happens to it all? Um, and particularly what happens to specialist knowledge or, you know, really valuable knowledge that really, really makes a difference. What do we do with it? Um, and we don't seem to to, to to value it to the extent that we're, we're going to do do anything proactive to, to to save it or retain it. And, and there were two two little things which really really got me going. One of which was a conversation with a really good friend of mine uh, called Jed, who was a was a teacher. And he was, he came late to teaching. Um, you know, he'd previously worked on the production line at Ford's and he, he took to teaching like a duck to water and the kids loved him. The parents loved him. Everyone loved him. He was a great teacher. And just before he retired a couple of years ago now, he went in to see his head teacher and his head said, you know what, Jed, if we could bottle what you have as a teacher, 
this wouldn't just be a good school. This would be an outstanding school. And then he let him walk away. And Jed left that school in possession of knowledge, wisdom, charisma, X-Fact, whatever you call it, that had the capability of taking that school from being good to outstanding. And he let it walk away. And I thought, you know, that's a hell of a waste. What a waste of knowledge. And then shortly after that, I opened the Sunday Times one day, and, and there was a, a headline. This is the thing that struck me as a, as a police officer of a, of a certain vintage. And there was a picture. I don't even remember the television series, uh, you know, Life on Mars, and then the subsequent one, Ashes to Ashes, uh, which was set in the sort of late 70s, early 80s, with all these archetypal detectives in, you know, big collars and uh, flares and all that sort of stuff. But it was a picture from that television series, and it was, I think... Uh, Keely Hawes and Philip Glenister were two of the main characters, sat on the bonnet of a, I don't know, a Cortina or an Audi or something that had been used as a police car. And the headline read, Met Stumped by Case of Disappearing CID. And the article was all about how the Metropolitan Police in London, you know, the biggest police force in the country, the most powerful police force probably in the world with, you know, with a global reach and with, you know, a national responsibility for the investigation of terrorism and various other types of crimes, were losing detectives. And their, their world-famous CID had been allowed to, uh, I, I quote them, wither and die. And what had happened was that the, the then Assistant Commissioner for, for, for Crime and Operations, uh, Pat Gallon, had written to every detective due to retire in that year and said and implored them to stay, to stay on and to act as mentors for junior detectives coming through. Now, I, it, it appealed to me because I know Pat Gallon and she, she wouldn't implore anyone to do anything really. So it came as a real surprise that, you know, in, in, in this very short time window, she had realized, hang on, we're going to lose all these people. And we haven't got the experience and the knowledge coming through to be replaced. So what are we going to do? And so, you know, cobbled with the the story from my other friend, Jed, and this, it, it just really got me thinking about, you know, what do businesses, what do organizations, what do bodies do to Firstly, identify the value of knowledge in their organizations and then do something to, uh, to, to capture it or to, to safeguard their organization against its loss. So that prompted me to do a lot of reading around the subject. Um, and that prompted me then to, to, to come up with a, a, a talk and, and some various other things that I've done um, a, a, around the subject of lost knowledge with an overall framework of knowledge management, um, strategic knowledge management, risk assessment, preparation, all that sort of stuff. So so that's what I've been talking about uh, recently and, and doing quite a bit of writing about as well. One, because it intrigues me, and two, because I, I hate waste. Any sort of waste I hate. And, and the idea that you can waste knowledge, just it's, it's sinful to, to me. So does that does that put that? You're so right. Yeah, in no. Context. Companies lose vast amounts of knowledge and experience, and when we're looking at you know building more inclusive cultures, when we talk about staff retention, when we're talking about the business can actually value the staff retention in the lost knowledge, the retraining, the onboarding, the empty seat cost, and and just the oh. opportunity lost. Oh yeah, people move on and. It is a real business expense that people really don't always quantify enough. They don't understand that cost of lost knowledge. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I did when I was reading around the subject, I read a report, um, and I think it was called, a very catchy title, called The Cost of Brain Drain, um, which I think was done by Oxford Economics. And I think they surveyed um, – across something like five sectors, so from retail through to legal. And they estimated, I think, that the average cost, average mind, of replacing um, 
a member of staff getting paid £25,000 a year uh, salary was between twenty and £40,000. Uh, the lower end for retail, the higher end for, for legal. And you think, hang on, 40000 about to replace someone. So that's, you know, all the different costs that you just described there. So, you know, the, the recruitment costs, the retraining, the onboarding, the dip in productivity while they bring people up to speed. And there, there was a quite a debate on, on, on the internet uh, connected to the, uh, to the report. And people said, no, that's way too much. And then the more and more people came in, particularly people from, you know, established HR functions and some of the big hitters, it became quite clear that that, as an estimate, was was pretty conservative. And if you think about it as as an employer, as as an organisation, and I, I used this the, the, the other day, if that's happening to you time after time after time, then your your organisational performance is is going to be on this roller coaster of you know dips in productivity while you retrain and recruit someone, dips in productivity while somebody else goes who you hadn't anticipated, and you get them retrained or you get somebody in or you get a temp. And who really wants to run an organisation that's on a roller coaster of performance? Surely, surely your, your business trajectory should be smoother slightly elevated, continuous improvement, so you can plan, so you know and can predict where you're heading. But no, organizations still seem to, not everyone, but still seem to have this um, this, this almost blind spot to, to, to knowledge and its value. And it all boils down to, um, for me, an, a reluctance or an inability perhaps sometimes to, to recognize the value that individuals bring to the organization in terms of the knowledge that they have. And that comes down to you know, leadership. It comes down to basic things like um, staff appraisal type reports. It comes down to performance um, measurements, you know, the, 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 the sort of um, performance measures that, that businesses use what do they see as evidence of their success and how do they tie that to individual employees and say hang on hang on joe get in here joe do you realize you're brilliant at what you do why are you so much better than peter where's the gap where's the gap in the knowledge where's the gap in in you know that x factor that you have that they don't because we we should We've got a responsibility to use that. So we've not only got a responsibility to tell you that you're great at what you do, but as as your manager, as your leader, surely I've got a responsibility to find out why you're so good at what you do so that I can apply that knowledge to other employees in this organization for the overall benefit of the organization. Surely that's what continuous improvement's about. Um, But people don't. And, you know, they don't read the clues. And there are so many examples of this not knocking about. You know, I, I use an example in in one of the talks of someone who, who worked with my wife. Now, my wife works for a clinical commissioning group, um, which is the, you know, the modern day iteration. It won't be around for much longer, I don't think, but uh, of the primary care trust, so in the National Health Service. And she worked with someone who had worked with this particular group since its inception. So this person had seen it move from being a primary care trust through various, um, I suppose, metamorphoses through to the, 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 the clinical commissioning group. She had all the corporate memory. She had all the processes, all the people. She'd been the journey all the way through. And she became, I suppose, a little bit dissatisfied or disillusioned or wanted to go somewhere else and started looking for a job, found a job, went to her bosses, her leaders in in this group and said, listen, uh, I've got a new job. I'm quite happy to work my notice, uh, whatever it was, a month, three months, but you might want to put someone with me to, um, you know, to empty me out, to, 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 to shadow me in this next however many months, and try and absorb all that and capture some of that accumulate. Yeah, okay, thanks very much. And they never came back to her. And she went back and said, 
remember, I'll I'll be going. At, it's it's only another it's only another two weeks now, and I'll I'll be out of here. Yeah, thanks, thanks for that. Yeah, but they did nothing about it, and she left. <laughs> and the next thing, immediately after she'd gone, you know, there's a knock on the door, and uh, hi, can you just tell me uh, who um, who did we go to for the maintenance contract on the? Uh, uh, I don't know. Um, she used to look after that. Oh, right. Um, and somebody else had ring, you know, who did the negotiations for the contract on such and such? No idea. Um, she had all that. Oh, where do we keep? And it, it was just one thing after another. And, you know, you, okay, you perhaps don't measure the performance of an organization like that quite in the same way as you might have a, an organization that's making widgets and grommets. But, you know, the, that their ability to 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 perform and seamlessly and and in an upward trajectory was deeply affected just by this one person and this this one person was not at the top of the organization this one person was way down in the in the organizational food chain for want of a better expression but their knowledge was absolutely vital and nobody had recognized it despite all the clues Despite this person almost coming and like sticking a post-it note on the face of the boss saying, I'm important, no one acknowledged it. No one recognized it. Nobody took the time or made the efforts to capture the knowledge that she had. And it walked out the door. And that's a sin. It really is. You can almost understand why they walked out the door because they weren't being recognized for their... Their, their whole part of the bigger process. They and weren't valued. They weren't treated as an important component. Yeah, and, and that's one of the, 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 the very points I make in, in, in the talk is that if you do recognize, and it really bothers me that, that there is, um, there is a, a meaning attributed to that little sort of trite HR expression, reward and recognition. Reward and recognition is, is about giving people you know, a gold watch or a voucher for Asda. It's not about saying to them, Joe, we recognize that actually if you didn't do what you'd do, this business would fall over. You're really good at what you do. That's recognition. And it, it bothers me that things like staff appraisal processes are so one-sided. They're things that we do to people. Whereas for me, in this context of lost knowledge, it should be the other way around. It should be inviting in the, the valuable employee and saying, how come you do so well? Tell, tell us the organization so that we can capture it, as I said before, for the benefit of the organization. And actually telling someone that they're a key person, that they are valued. As you say, that might be the difference between them walking out the door and not. That might be the, the difference between them sitting there and puffing up with pride and thinking, Oh, nobody's ever told me that before. I'm actually valued. And that, you know, it, it, it breeds loyalty. It breeds self-esteem. It breeds cohesion in a team, um, self-respect. You know, the, the benefits of doing it are just immeasurable. But the downsides of not doing it are catastrophic, potentially. So why aren't people doing it? And that's the thing for me. Oh, and... As as we as we know ourselves, the facts don't change people. We know this stuff. We don't address it, do we? And I, I was, as you're talking, I was thinking, are we still living in a world, this command and control hierarchical corporate structure, where everyone believes it's all process driven and everyone's just a part of a cog? But what the way that we're moving in, in workplaces become more complex. We've got more parts, more interactions. It, not just because of digital, it's because of the way we're evolving as a society. And we're be all becoming artisans, specialists in our craft. And that craft may well be policy processing, it may be admin, but it's still, we're, we're putting our own knowledge and skill into this, not just following a production line of process. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think organizations truly appreciate the artisan inside us. The creation we bring as an individual, they just see us as a cog, replaceable cog. And that's exactly what you're pointing out here, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and, and it, you know, it, it dovetails so neatly with um, – there was a piece I wrote some probably years ago now on, on, on LinkedIn called Lazy Leaders Don't Listen. And it's all about if you're in a leadership role, 
you are obliged to proactively listen with all of your senses to what's going on around you. Because if you don't know your staff, if you don't know what makes them tick, if you don't know and appreciate the contribution they make, you know, who oils the wheels, who do I rely on, who do we go to in a crisis? If you don't know those things, how are you ever going to protect the organization from losing the knowledge that those people hold? And so, you know, you, you really do. You, you, you've got to net, let, well, get to know all of your people or as many as you can um, uh, at, a, at a completely different level, you know, a, a level that that allows you to, to sort of come into work and, and look at Joe and say, I can tell right now, I know Joe so well, I can tell right now that something's not right. Joe, come in here. What's not right? Well, it's this. And when you know, when, when you get that sort of level, that sort of interaction, okay, you know, the person, if, even if you're working in a hierarchy, the person at the very top of the tree may not know that. But if the person further down who's managing the team or the person who's managing the manager of the team knows that, then at least there is a you know that there is a way of using that uh, that that knowledge and that familiarity to 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 make sure that you don't then lose the knowledge that it doesn't walk out the door that you know you, you can you can turn it back on the organisation for the benefit of the organisation. That's 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 what I'm getting at really. But um, what was the one you talked about artisan? There, oh, it's, it's, it's really really. It, it it rang home to me because when I mentioned that I speak about this to anyone, anyone at all, everyone's got an example of it. I was out for a walk a couple of weeks ago um, with a mate of mine and his son-in-law. Now, I don't know his son-in-law particularly well, but he works in manufacturing uh, and, and they, they make electrical components. And I was talking about this. And he says, God, you're so right. You know, we, we've got a fellow works for us. And he's the only person doing this particular job. Now, they, these people make specialist electrical components, for example, for wiring in space. So this one guy has been doing the same job for 40 years. Now, that immediately should have all the alarm bells. And if he falls over, that part of the business is gone. And it's not just gone for now. It's gone forever. But it's not even just about making the components. This guy weaves these these amazing cables, um, I think by hand, but he, he weaves them so that they can withstand the temperatures in space because they get used in space. It really is rocket science. So he weaves these cables, but because he understands the process, he is also the only person that knows how to write the tender for them. So when they're looking to win business, they rely on this guy to write the tender, to understand the market, to put the business case. So you take that all, all of that out of that manufacturing business, and it's a huge hole. And not only that, but it's, you know, it's a valuable piece of, of manufacturing that the, the the ability to to, to complete, as it, which of which is gone. Um, one you know, one of the guys I go out motorcycling with, he's the same. He's he's a, he's an engineer who has a skill in what they call white metalling, and it's a dying skill. There's not that much call for it, but once it's gone, it's gone. And and again, the the sort of the the, the waste of that is 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 criminal almost. I knew a, a a person in my network. This is probably ten, fifteen years ago, and he was now doing a role completely different. And I got to know him one day, and I said, "So, what have you been doing?" He said, "Oh, well, I used to run my own multi-million-pound manufacturing company, supplying this product into this niche market for, for years. I was the only person that made this in the world as a niche product." I said, "Oh, what happened to that?" He said, "Well, one of the key components of that product became obsolete." And nobody in the world manufactured an equivalent component. We spent five years R and D trying to work around this product, this component, see if we could reinvent it. And what we eventually had to do was say, 
there's only a thousand of these left in the world, and then we we close our business because they couldn't invent a, a workaround. Yeah. This one component, and that's exactly. If you can do that with a component, we don't see it with a person, do we? And that's absolutely. Yeah, there are R and D teams in electronics, and and all looking for different ways of, yeah. of working around when that transistor or resistor or circuit chip goes out obsolete. We think about that, but we don't think about the people, do we? No, no, and and you know, you, you, well, one of the other examples I, I use, which is not in in such a sophisticated field, if you think back to the Roman Empire and the construction of the Colosseum, um, the Colosseum and I think is it the Pantheon um, are two of the last constructions, and they are both still with us today, which used uh, a material called concrete. There was nothing made of concrete from the end of the Roman Empire in about whatever it was, 467 or something AD. I can't remember the date exactly. Until about 1783, I think it was, when concrete was used to make the Eddystone Lighthouse. So for about you know 1,200 years, concrete wasn't used. Why? Because someone lost the recipe. Someone in the Roman Empire lost the recipe for concrete. Now, you think how many things were built, how many civilizations were built during that period, that 1,200-year period, and think how different a lot of that might have been if concrete had been available and been used. But it wasn't. And, and that's just one example. But worldwide, that would have been... Amazing. You know, you think about the bridges that could have been made, you know, the the thoroughfares, the roads, the sea defences, whatever it might it might have changed the whole shape of the globe, as we know. We just don't know. But but all because someone lost that little snippet of information, that little piece of knowledge that said, Oh, actually, if you burn lime like this and you mix it with that and then you combine it with that and put it with this and put so much water and so much stone, it makes this really dead hard compound. Um, but no, gone. <laughs> it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Isn't it? that we're doing that now, aren't we? <laughs> Even in the modern times, we're now de-evolving certain skills where log tables, slide rules, I mean, just an example of that. We, if you showed a slide rule to a, a young person, they'd look at you like you were crazy. What, 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 you calculate that. And even a slide rule that does log tables, what would you, what would you want to do with log, logarithms? And it's like, oh, that's because you add instead of multiply. It's a lot easier, apparently. And so we're, we're losing the, the knowledge of those things that have been superseded. Yeah. Yeah. We're losing the ability to write. We're losing the ability to have conversations. We lose the because we're kind of re-evolving ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Mental exactly. maths. We don't do mental maths anymore, do we? It's we've always well, got a calculator. There's just no need. There's, there's no need. But but it's not just about. It's not just you know what I talk about. It's not just about saving, if you like. Excuse me. Um, knowledge in danger of extinction. You know, I use extinction in the same context as I might with, with with animals. You know, this isn't something that's just dying out. I. I I think my 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 interest in it is is in how it gets lost from organizations, how it's not used and not maximized for the benefit of organizations, and how organizations and business go through this this cycle of losing it, rediscovering it, losing it, rediscovering it, retraining, re-employing, recruiting, when when they don't really need to do all of that stuff. Or they could avoid a huge amount of the percentage of the, of the cost of doing it and the time of doing it and the impact on their business of doing it by thinking about it beforehand and properly recognizing, properly appreciating what it means, who that knowledge is vested in, and doing something about it at the time. There you go. That's me. <laughs> I was actually chatting to my daughter last night, and uh, she, my daughter's the manager of an early years um, playgroup uh, for for children preschool, and she has a a really high staff turnover for various reasons. Um, some of it is the culture, some of it is the the fact due to COVID. You, they used to do it on the on the job experience. You, you come and try it out for a week before you before you said, "Yeah, I like the job." So there's understand what it's like it's not it's not just babysitting 
on steroids. This is like proper childcare reports, Ofsted, all this kind of thing. So it's not just babysitting. And a lot of people come into this as a profession, not realizing the true depth of what it means to be an early years care or educator. And so what she's finding is, is because she's the, t- the manager of the, of the, of the nursery where she is, most of, a lot of her role is training and onboarding. So because she's got a high turnover of staff, she's always onboarding. She's always putting going through the same process time and time again for people who often stay a week or two weeks. And for her, it's obviously distracting her from being a better manager and leader because she's so busy doing the training, but also it's demoralizing her because she feels so thankless that she's not enjoying her role. So the knock-on effect of this retention challenge, the knock-on effect of this constant replacement, the knock-on effect is you're demoralizing the people that are still there. You're almost like there's this groundhog day again and again and again, which erodes the business's ability to move forward. And, and that's where she's really getting frustrated with her job. And it, it struck me as you were talking that that is another side effect of this churn and turnover that people don't even always consider constant reinvention of the wheel you know which is swallowing up resources time it's swallowing up goodwill and loyalty it's 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 swallowing up all the positivity out of people it's it's a proper mood over you know just constantly redoing the same thing when all it needs really well maybe not all it needs but but one of the things is someone just to break that cycle Step outside it and think, hang on, we need to take a different look at this. Why do we keep going through this cycle of recruitment and retraining and loss when we should actually be looking at our people and risk assessing the likelihood of them going? That's one of the aspects of this. And people say, well, how do you do that? You know, well, ask them for a start, you know, what are your plans for the next couple of years? Or, you know, you look at someone and, and you, you can you can make reasonable comparisons, you know. Well, actually, if you're a lazy leader that doesn't listen, you wouldn't know this. But if you've done your listening, if you've paid attention, you say, well, I know Joe and her husband have just moved into uh, 43 Crawley Drive because they were talking about it at the coffee machine the other day. They've got a whopping big mortgage, but they've said that's their forever house not least of which because they're planning to have kids. They've got a great primary school around the corner and they want to stay there. And it's really handy for, for Joe's work here at our business. Well, you know, there's a load of clues in there, isn't there? That this person is unlikely to want to move on. If, however, you look at Peter and you see that actually you look at his HR record and Peter's had five jobs in the last six years. He, every time he's, he's taken a slight increase in salary and, um, He's taking a slight increase. He's got he's got a career in mind. This guy's ambitious. Well, that might be the point at which you get Peter in and say, Peter, what are your plans? Um, I noticed this about you, but you know we we really value what you do here. We don't want to lose you. Again, go back to that valuing and that self esteem and all that sort of stuff. Well, Peter might actually then say, Well, I tell you what, if you don't want me to to go, the reason I'd go is because I, you know I need to have an increment or I need to have a bit more responsibility. I need to have some progression and this place doesn't offer me progression. Okay. Well, that's when you start looking at your HR policies, your HR um, services and and say, well, maybe we can offer you that progression. What would it take to keep you? Because we don't want to lose you. Now I'm not saying you let everyone hold you to hostage, uh, hold, hold you to ransom. Sorry, but, but there are things that you can do if you're looking, if you're listening, if you're properly thinking about risk assessment of the people that are going to go, you know, risk assessment is, you know, risk equals, you know, probability by consequences, you know, so how likely is something going to happen? How much damage is it going to do to you? If you've got 20 people all doing the same job, the loss of one of them doesn't really mean an awful lot. If you've got one person like this guy weaving cables for space, one person doing one job, he's been doing it for 40 years, his departure is a significantly bigger risk to the organization. It's simples, as that nice meerkat on the telly says. Yeah. I, I mean, we, we know that we should be doing succession planning. We know that we shouldn't, because for the individual, yes, they may feel special. They're the only person. They may feel the given a sense of security. There's an immense amount of pressure to be the only one. Yeah. Because 
I mean, I, I've been in examples in my own career where I was always the one that people asked all the questions to. Rather, rather than spend time investigating, spend time using their own brains, they knew that if they asked me the question, they'd get an answer and it would save them having to think about it. So the danger of that is you create this environment where nobody thinks, nobody investigates, nobody does the finding out. They just keep going back to the original person, which yeah. puts a burden on them as being their expert. Yeah. Also, it means they never learn. They never develop their career. They never experience it. And then when you're a manager or you're a delegator, you say, who should I give this task to? You go, well, nobody else knows. Is I might as well give it to the person who's the expert. And so we never actually, as a leader, say, well, actually, if I can't give it to anybody else, that should be a flag. I should yeah. be going, well, actually, I need to be able to give it to somebody else exactly. because our rocket scientist here is already working on the next space shuttle. We need to go to Mars. So I need somebody else to come in. And yeah. that's what leaders don't always focus on is the succession. Yeah. And yeah. The, as you say, the lost knowledge, the knowledge and, that and will be lost. That. You can do that dynamically. You know, you can do that sort of risk assessment. You know, it doesn't have to be a big complicated process. But if you ask yourself a number of questions, as I said before, you know, is this the only person doing this job and they don't have a deputy? Is this person the go-to person in a crisis, has this person got all the contacts inside or outside the organization, then that's going to be flagging it up to you that you've got a problem. And that person represents a risk and the loss of their knowledge represents a risk to the organization. So do something about it. Yeah. I I, I was thinking about the word prehistoric just now as you're talking. And I, I was just I just thought prehistoric, that's dinosaurs. That's that's all this sort of like meteors and and volcanic eruptions and volca- prehistoric. I, I never understood what prehistoric meant. It's prehistory. It's before history was recorded. So we never had language. We never had a way of recording it. Or there was no humans enabled to pass that knowledge down. So there was nothing existed that we have any knowledge about other than what we could find out from the, the past evidence. And we as humans started creating history at the point where we, we became well, language evolved through cave paintings, through round the fire storytelling passing that knowledge down through generations. But I'm guessing that in those days, the process that we, we worked on was very simplistic. It was how to kill the mammoth. It was how to cook or skin it. It was how to build a hut. So that the process-driven stuff was, was our lives are much simpler. But we haven't evolved the modern equivalent of the um, – the sagas, the storytelling, in a way that we always effectively pass it down. Is it, and that's, I'd like to think, because a lot of our processes are now so much more complex. And we don't have that mentality of, of, of passing it on so much. Well, it, again, and, and this is, again, this is one of the things that really interests me about this. I mean, my sort of, I was lucky enough to, to be selected for a scholarship to go to university when I was in the police. And I, I studied psychology and communication studies. And one of the things we did in, in, communication studies was was about storytelling and cultural transmission um, through myth and storytelling. And you talk about prehistoric. Um, so some of the, the most successful cultures, and when I talk about successful, I mean in being able to manage some of the harshest environments on the planet. So, so some of the most successful cultures you know, never had access to an iPad. They, they they sat around a campfire and by some means, as you say, through fireside chat, myth, whatever, they were able to convey all those messages, you know, how to hunt the mammoth, how to skin it and make it into a kebab or whatever it might be. But but they did it and, and they survived today. You know, the, the Aboriginals in Australia, some South American native Indians in, in the depths of the Amazon, you know, they haven't changed for thousands and thousands of years in some respects, but they have survived this incredibly harsh environment and learned how to survive in that incredibly harsh environment purely by cultural transmission through myth and storytelling. An example. Um, I was on a call the other day, and 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 someone sort of made the observation that the you know, the, the the office water cooler is is 
this prehistoric fireside. And it, yeah, it may well be that there's an awful lot of the stuff that I'm talking about that does get passed on at the water cooler, at the coffee machine, in the breakout lounge, whatever it might be. But you've got to be aware of it. You've got to be alive to it. You've got to be receptive to it. Um, and then you've got to do something about capturing it. So there needs to be perhaps some more formal framework. That's what I'm hearing. In place. I'm hearing a lot of that where as we're, we're approaching the end of this phase of COVID where lockdown's ending and, and now there's this huge debate around whether we stay remote workers, whether we hybrid, whether we go back to the office. And there's some big key corporate influencers are saying that one thing that's been lost over COVID is the, the water cooler, that yeah. ad hoc mentoring, that ad hoc help. Um, and, and I, and I was sitting there thinking, yeah, okay, I get that. So we, we've, when we've, when we've got trainees, we've got people who are learning their skills, apprentices, we've got people who have been mentored and developed in the organization. And then maybe they haven't got that, that close contact where that's happening. I was thinking, well, it's the only answer to that to go back in the office. So what we're saying is the only way that paradigm works is by going back to the office. Or can we say what we're doing now in this hybrid world, we're missing this element. We haven't got that right. How can we solve that where the only answer isn't going back yeah. to the office? Yeah. No, and, and there are companies out there that have never had an office. Yeah. They've developed all their products with people around the world. And they have thrived and succeeded. I mean, nobody owns Bitcoin, yet Bitcoin has somehow become pervasive. Um, and, and, and there's probably someone listening to this will, will tell me, actually, I'm wrong. There is somebody that's doing this, and Elon Musk has the power or something. But we've, we've got to say to ourselves is, just because that's the only way we could do it before, doesn't mean to say that's the only way we can do it in the future. So I think what I'd like to see is, is business, working habit, working practice evolving to a point where we keep what we need to occur but the answer isn't always by the way we always did it. Yeah, yeah. How do we reinvent process? How do we how Absolutely. do we create new spaces? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, it, it's it's one of the, the the key points I make in in my lost knowledge talk is that one of the biggest casualties of COVID has been the um, the absence of physical contact. And when I talked before about you know lazy leaders don't listen, you've got to be receptive to the clues. All the clues that come with that sort of three-dimensional contact rather than the two-dimensional Zoom-type call or Teams-type call, all those little nuances of behavior, the body language, the little things you see, the gestures, the bit that you might pick up at the car park, the, you know, and Joanne suddenly having a bit of a moment at her desk and rushing off to the toilets for a week or Simon on sales suddenly fist-pumping because he's just, you know, secured a new – you don't see any of that. Because we live in this sort of sterilized little, we've got a 40-minute Zoom, it's in two dimensions, and that's it. So, yeah, you've got to find a way of capturing all the other, that third dimension of communication, all those little bits. But you're absolutely right, in my humble opinion. It may not be that, well, actually, we've all got to go back to the office to do that. Maybe there's other ways of doing that. Um, I, I don't know what they are, but as you say, there's going to be businesses oh, yeah, and organizations are that are doing that. What are they doing? I mean, the other argument I've heard is that we need to go to work to socialize, to have human contact. There's a stat on how many people's relationship and marriages have been created in a work environment. I thought, okay, this is what we're doing here is we're, we're, we're trying to retrofit observation with reality. And I think, well, if we, if we take the world of work back 50 to 100 years, most of the people in work were all men. Yes, people still managed to get married. So we managed to get married before workplaces were mixed. We managed to evolve. We managed to have socializing contact before women entered the workplace. And when, when women were exclusively in the workplace, when the men were at war, we still managed to have families and get married as well. So the workplace doesn't have to be the place where you can or have to meet your partner. And, I, and when they were saying, we, we have to go back to the office to socialize, I said, 
no, we don't. What we need to do is we need to have socialization. So if I'm not spending three hours of my day commuting and working late and being in an office, that means I've got three hours where I can go to the gym. I can hang out locally. I can do, I can do enrichment in, in college. I can, I can meet other people in my community. So I can socialize locally, not think that the work is my place for socialization. So again, what we're, we're trying to do is, is trying to force the old paradigms back into say, well, we need it to socialize. We need it for growth. We need it for networking. We need it for human contact. Now, how about we don't go to the office and we build that in our community and we build what we used to have, the campfire, the, the, the village fate, the church, whatever, whatever our, our root of community is. And we reestablish that rather than people sitting like drones on a train commuting for four hours, using this fossil fuel, wasting their time, coming home drained, not having family time, not, not, not passing on their knowledge to their children because they're so tired. The children end up learning from somebody else's book and not your knowledge. That's what I want to see is the artisan taking empowerment into our own lives and bringing it having control over our life again, not being a slave to the machine. And that's, that's really why and I, it really frustrates me when people say the only answer is go back to work. No, that's, the, that's an answer, but not the answer. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, I think you're entirely right. Um, and I'm hopeful, hopeful <laughs> that some of the, the more forward thinking organizations will have picked up on that and will have, Alternatives. If they've not designed them yet, they'll be thinking about them and doing some research on them because there will be, you know, I mean, I, I, I read a book. Um, it was recommended by Alan Stevens, actually, uh, by a fellow called Ricardo Sembler. I don't know if you've read it. It's called Maverick. And this is a guy um, who, who ran a company called Semco in Brazil, big manufacturing company. And basically he, he turned the whole sort of organizational management norms on their head. <laughs> you know, um, well, how much holiday do you give your employees? Well, how much do they need? So I let them decide, you know, they're grown-ups. If they need a day off, they can have a day off. Well, what hours are you going to tell them to work? Well, why would I tell them what hours to work? You know, they know what the product is that we want to do. They know how many we want to produce. Um, if they can do it in that time. And, you know, just everything <laughs> really that that – was, oh, how can you do that? We've never done that before. Nobody ever does that. Well, why not? Why not give it a whirl? Um, and it is, it's his company, I don't know what it's doing now because it's quite an old book, but it's, he's now, I think, a, a lecturer at some like Harvard or, or Yale or some top American business school. Um, and his business at the time just went from strength to strength to strength to strength, you know, because they found different ways of doing things instead of just rooting everything in the past and, you know, chop, chop, busy, busy, work, work, bang, bang, we're just going to do the same as we've always done because, as they say, you do the same as you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting read. Um, yeah, and if you get a good shareholder return, you, you've got good good income, you think, well, why do I need to change? What we're doing works. But it never evolves. And I, I think I, mean, I, I, I love that concept where – there's plenty of organizations now where you get unlimited holiday. You, you, you pick your own holiday. You pick your own hours. And there's still this command and control traditional way of working where if I can't see you at your desk, this presenteeism mentality. If I can't see you, I can't trust you. If I can't see what you're doing, I don't know what you're doing. I, I've got, I've got a spy. I've got a watch. I've got to police you and make sure that you're, you're delivering. But, but we forget often that I think it's 67% of the UK population, adult population, are working for small businesses. Of that number, a large percentage of those are solopreneurs managing and building their own businesses that they're built, and they manage inherently their own time and react to customers. So what we're doing is we're effectively telling employees they can't be entrepreneurial or intrapreneurial. As, as, We've got to treat them like children. We can't treat them like adults. And, and okay, there are some people who need structure. They need to have work in that environment. But what, when we start treating people like children, they start acting like children. They, they want to be spoon-fed. They want to be told. Whereas you look at all the people, maybe that they've they've been parents. You know, there's no there's no time scale on being a parent. You just 
be a parent your ch- so your children don't die they still survive so you've got to be really really careful that we what we don't we, we put these biases on, on people and these believing that they're going to slack or not do their job or their role if we can't see them or, or keep control of them and we've got to have faith in people that by treating them in that way of, of allowing them to have unlimited holiday allowing them to pick their own, whatever their hours they are and measure them on output on real value and delivery and, and set clear expectations about what their output is, then they can match their own. If I if I want to get up at three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday and go, oh, I haven't done that presentation, let me do it now for Monday morning, and then I can have a line on Monday morning, why not? Why can't I work those hours? But the expectation today is that if I want to wake up on Saturday morning at three o'clock and do that, I still have to be there first thing Monday. There's yeah. no quid quo quo. Yeah. There's no and sliding scale where I can adapt. It's, it's what I was saying before. It's about recognizing where the value sits in the individual and the way they do their job and their knowledge. You know, your value in that scenario sits at three o'clock in the morning on Saturday, not at nine o'clock as you clocking, ka-ching, walk through the door of, of your factory or your office block or your training room or whatever it might be. Um, but you know, you, you'll never establish that if, if if you don't trust people. If you don't trust people, then you can never properly see the value of what they they do because they won't let that out. They they won't give you it. They'll they'll hold it and they'll be that. Then, particularly around things like knowledge and specialist knowledge, they'll hold that that in in some sort of very selfish golem sort of like way my pretty i'm going to hold my knowledge and no one's going to share it because that's my power because no one trusts me but i've got this and as long as i've got this i'm safe um and you know part of this yeah. process for that, me that is about, still what happens because oh yeah. yeah of course it is of course it is but you've got to sort of prize that out and say hang on we're all in this together you're doing a great job what happens if you fall over? Well, that's not my problem. Well, it's going to be my problem, so I want to equip myself to deal with it. So let's talk about how we're going to deal with it. But, but that's, a, that's a bit, again, about how you value people, how you create this culture of belonging, where yeah. people have this psychological safety. They don't feel in fear of their job, and they don't fear if they, if they, if they share their knowledge, that devalues their contribution. And that's what we've got to try and do is make sure people are valued for the sharing, not the hoarding. And I think the other thing that we, that's evolving at the moment is this concept of asynchronous communication. In the past, we had to have that interactive chat at the cooler. We had to have that phone call. I phone you, you answer it. We, we, it's real time. But now we're moving on to a more asynchronous way where you say to me, I'd like this done at some point in the next few days to do the task. I then receive that in my time scale and I reply to you within the time scale required. Yeah. We don't need to have an interactive conversation. So I'm not interrupting you. You're not interrupting me. I could pick off my work queue and put it back on the done queue. And I think we're evolving that with messaging and chat and people go, well, we're losing the human contact. Well, fine. Let's keep the human contact in our social life. We don't have to socialize in work. Let's, let's keep yeah. reminding ourselves there are other opportunities opportunities to socialize if we're not tied to the desk and we can we can be very efficient in communicating asynchronously delivering work cues delivering output and give ourselves real time to enjoy our family enjoy lifestyle enjoy well-being enrich ourselves where work isn't the hub and of course that scares the bejesus out of the boss Bosses want to own you. They want to know they've got you because they're scared that your knowledge, as you say, your knowledge will walk. But have faith in people. They won't walk if you love them and value them. Yeah, That's the, that's the, that's the ratio we've got to change here where people feel valued and they, they have the power to leave but never want to. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, that's one of the, the sort of key foundations of this. Um, if you're going to make it work in an organization, you know, I, I remember seeing something might have been on Facebook or LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago now, and I think it was the boss of Netflix, and it, he was exactly the same. You know, Netflix, God knows how successful they are, particularly in the last 18 months. I think everybody, if you were to drain a pint of blood off them, all the red blood cells would have Netflix around the outside of them because um, everyone's been watching Netflix. So they must have been Zoom really in the well. middle. Zoom and Netflix, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think they've done really well out of things, but you know, their, their, their sort of 
management structure, the way that they they manage their staff um, is is very much along the sort of collaborative, participative sort of framework that, that you described there. You know, it's very loose, but it's very sort of appreciative. Yeah, um, we, we know the contribution you make. Again, no hard and fast rules about things like time off, annual leave, whatever it might be. You, you do the job and, and you know, you're grown-ups. And um, I think some of the most successful businesses in the, in, in the world are, are very much like that. Um, and people need to learn from we do We do recognize that not everybody – not everybody wants to work in that way. You know, people who are neurodivergent, people who have, have different ways of thinking, different ways of, of being valued. We know it doesn't suit everybody. So we can't, so, you know, whilst we're doing this work evolution, we have to recognize that some people still need structure. Some people still need routine. Some people still need to be told. Yeah. And some people to do need next. exactly and, the opposite. And that's, yeah. And, and you know, you, and, and, yeah. you know, in terms of the sort of the inclusion bites side of, of of your podcast, that that is a realization I think that an awful lot of people need to come to. That actually there isn't one size fits all for for employees, you know. And whether that's in in uh, whether they work in an office, whether whether that's whether they work with computers, whether they work with other people, whether they need to communicate verbally or whether they can communicate electronically all of those different variables that exist in the workplace will suit somebody but they won't necessarily all suit everybody um and and to to try and inflict yeah. that and we need to look at the people who are displaced yeah yeah we'll look at the people who are being displaced because if we're not traveling to the city we're not working in office buildings we're not buying lunch we don't need security guards we don't need um transport we don't need as many buses or trains the infrastructure that we needed in the past where we had hundreds of thousands of people commuting in and out of cities we don't need that anymore the people involved in repairs and maintenance we don't need the same level as those <laughs> no, no, because we could just hop up. We got the, in, the internet superhighway, as we, I think we used to call it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it it yeah, speed lines up in the air, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So we've got to think about who's being displaced. Yeah, yeah. So it's very important to think about who's being displaced, not look through our own privileged lens of this is how I think it must be good for everybody. So it is important to think about the impact on people who are being displaced by this change of working and what can we do for their future of work to, to reinvent their roles in, in society or their career paths or their opportunities and what does that look like in the future rather than just saying well we want a lot of IT whiz kids or we want a lot of high-flying solicitors or lawyers who can do things remotely or AI is going to replace all that. So, yeah, it, it, I think the future of work has to consider all, you know, holistic, inclusive and not just follow the money. It has to be, there has to be some social equity in there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. We've been talking for ooh, nearly an hour and that, that's flown by and you know, we chatted obviously for half an hour before we started on the, on the recording. So amazing. I, I've actually loved this conversation and I always enjoy talking and I to you. I haven't even so, started about anything else, but I probably haven't got time to now. No, we didn't. We didn't talk about your forty odd years in the in the uh, in the Merseyside Police and your your stories from the uh, yeah. from from that from time. Society, and maybe we will do a follow up. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we we'll do a follow up. Um, Go on. <laughs> but to tell us how people can get hold of you. So, I mean, why not? People can get hold of you. You know, you uh, you well, um, they can they can, they can you, find me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn are you? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, um, where uh, my sort of persona at the moment is certainly all about the lost knowledge speaking. Um, the the after dinner side, find me at the website, which is www.peteredge.net. Um, you know, all my contact details are on LinkedIn, or you can email me at um, peteredge at sky.com. If you want to listen to some of the stories from the Camino, um, I did two Camino podcasts. So just to reiterate that, it's the Camino podcast. Uh, if you search that on Google, it will go straight to one of my two Caminos uh, that I actually recorded. So either the Camino Portuguese or the Camino Primitivo. So there's plenty there for you to get to te get your teeth into. And um, we've got lots more to talk about on a on another one of these at some stage in the future, Joe. We have. No, and 
I think you you wet my whistle with the uh, the whole aspect of this lost knowledge, and it, it, I just thought it was really really interesting to follow that up. So thank you so much, really insightful. Um, well, a huge thank you to anyone who's listening in and made it to the end. Really impressed. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for getting this far. So please do subscribe to keep updates on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. I'm sure you've got some friends. I'm sure you must have some colleagues somewhere. So please tell them all about it. Share this with everybody you know. Because I've got a number of other exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be inspired by over the next few weeks and months. And of course, maybe you, you're listening. If you'd like to be a guest, then come and let me know. Because I'd always welcome your suggestions, your feedback, how I can improve future shows and how we can improve things. So. My name is Joanne Lockwood, joe.lockwood at seedchainchapman.co.uk. It's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.